This is Republic of INSEAD, the 20 years later O3D podcast edition. I am Milena Ivanova and will be your host in this limited series. So, here we are, 20 years later, hopefully all the wiser, naturally smarter and as charming as ever. There were 432 of us in the O3D vintage. And certainly, there are 432 unique and very interesting personal and professional stories to tell. While I cannot physically cover all, I have tried to make a selection of stories that will keep you interested and curious and will hopefully convince you to join us on campus for reunion. Welcome to the Republic of INSEAD podcast edition and enjoy the show. All right, two announcements to make from my end before we get going with episode five of the Republic of INSEAD podcast. First of all, thank you for listening. Super exciting to report you people seem to be liking it. The first three episodes have gotten up to 180 listens per episode so far. Astounding. Something like 40 plus percent of the class has reconnected through this. And I don't know about you, but let me tell you, this makes me very, very happy. Second. A few things happened as I started recording, and so I'm shifting gears and starting today, you'll be getting two new episodes per week, all the way to reunion. I'll present you with the bill for my precious time come reunion. So keep listening, keep giving feedback and enjoy catching up all the way to October 6th, when according to INSEAD's super sophisticated forecasting tool, 159 of us are expected to show up on campus 238, including partners. I fully expect that as sophisticated as INSEAD's forecasting model may be, we may yet prove them wrong and surprise on the upside, simply because the O3D bunch operates in a class of its own. So that's that. Now, focusing on the episode on hand, let me start with a disclaimer. The sample of participants I have invited on the show is not random. Sorry, Enrico. One particular aspect I worked really hard on is to get an equal number of women and men on the show. Well, let me tell you, as far as the women are concerned, it ain't easy. And not because only 25% of the class were female. I'm still working on it, but that's a story for another day. Today, I'm happy to have on the other mic my second female victim. Here's the entry on her from the Republic of INSEAD yearbook. Open quotation. 8.29.59 a.m. Piscine Car Park, the famous Bulgarian car, also known as the Beast, arrives. Damaged on every side except for the roof, this car has quite a story to tell. Its charming BG sign stands for many things, including Bond Girl with her top secret cell phone charger. The blonde goddess has performed at events around the globe, including Oville Surf parties, the opening of Schindler's List in LA, the British Week Blind Date Contest, karaoke nights at the Bureau and the Chinese National Party, the Boer Society musical at Cabaret and during American Week, where she became prom queen. Winning is her passion, in particular when it comes to fearlessly leading Les Artistes and fighting in her academic rep role with INSEAD's favorite Dean Pekka. While BG stands for many more things, such as be gorgeous, it most certainly stands for being generous. P.S. B. 
PG can soon be found in GB, more stories to come. There we are. Welcome to the show. I guess there were six Bulgarian women in our year, but most people already know who I'm about to say hello to. Hello. I'm sure they all know, and that's because um, everyone knew what a great driver I was. Um, but I still love the car that indeed was scratched and bumped on every side, with the exception of its roof. Um, so, hello everyone, and uh, thank you, Milena, for having me on um, today. I enjoyed tremendously listening to the stories of um, our classmates and um, I almost feel that I know a lot about them even though I haven't seen them some of them in 20 years. Um, Les artistes, shall we sing again? We are the world. <laughs> Or yeah. maybe we should invite Ricky to, to do that one again. Who knows, knows. But tell me about LA. All the rest I knew, but uh, your performance at Schindler's List, I totally discovered. Uh, that was part of uh, actually my first year of uh, university. And uh, it really was connected um, with um, some history from Bulgaria. Um, the Bulgarian Jews were saved during the Second World War. Uh, by the then king of Bulgaria. Um, his, uh, both his children are still alive and um, at some point of time they were um, contacted by um, the Jewish uh, society in uh, LA uh, for uh, a reminiscence of what the Bulgarian, uh, the Bulgarian king but also the Bulgarian people did uh, for uh, the Jewish population in Bulgaria. Those were good days and really days of tolerance and, and days ultimately of uh, collaboration and support uh, for the underdog. And I um, was very proud of it. But more importantly, I was invited to go and sing um, a few things um, at uh, the event which was connected with Schindler's List because um, I guess because of that connection and because I was uh, at the time at the American University in Bulgaria. And there you go, American University in Bulgaria, where 20 or 30 years later you're still involved with. But uh, let's, let's start there, actually, 20 years. What have you been up to in the last 20 years? And you have five minutes to give us the... I'll be very um, quick on that. Um, because it's very simple, really. The person that wrote uh, the, uh, the uh, little blurb that you just read is Walter Falstrow, who um, at some point of time um, introduced me to my husband, a Brit. Um, so basically, ever since I graduated in Sayad, I uh, have been living in London. I... Um, started, well, I returned to my old job, uh, which was um, in corporate finance and mergers and acquisitions at Credit Suisse. And uh, I spent um, the next 10 years there. And after that, um, with another two um, MDs, ma managing directors from Credit Suisse, we created Magnolia Advisory. And um, Magnolia Advisory was initially focusing on um, divestitures either from family offices or 
um, sale of spin-outs um, out of universities. And um, when the universities raised a lot of capital and actually did not need to sell their spin-outs so early, um, I transitioned into overseeing um, the private capital investments of a family office and also overseeing an endowment. And those two actually could um, appear quite um, unconnected, but they are very much related in the way um, the, the strategies uh, work for, for both. So we'll, we'll get to that later on. And in terms of my uh, personal life, I have uh, two children. My husband hasn't run away yet. And um, I uh, also have a cat. Um, one interesting um, kind of detail about my personal and professional life is that actually um, I uh, had at some point of time to decide whether I wanted um, to have a career or to be a mother that uh, whose children uh, can recognize her. And this was in the year 2012. Um, at the time, Credit Suisse um, wanted me uh, to move to Moscow. And because the rest of my family couldn't move to Moscow, they came up with the idea of me commuting to Moscow, uh, which involved um, uh, about a four and a half hour flight, three hour time difference, leaving on a Sunday night, taking the red eye and coming back on a Friday night. It sounded very easy um, on paper, I guess. Um, I had an 18 month old uh, baby at the time and I also uh, was pregnant with my second child. And I, at that point, decided that uh, I would prefer um, to actually um, stay in London, even though the position in Moscow, I must admit, was um, exceptionally tempting. But um, I am not regretting it for a second that I decided to stay in London. And um, my husband, who has been all his life an entrepreneur, encouraged me to um, actually start Magnolia Advisory. So um, I was kind of the, the driver behind uh, rounding up my two much more senior uh, colleagues uh, to create uh, Magnolia Advisory. And really, if I um, didn't uh, have that pain point um, of... Uh, trying to combine family life with uh, professional life, I probably would have never become an entrepreneur. Being a banker, I was really very, very uh, risk averse. So uh, starting my own thing was the last thing I thought I would do. But uh, mothers do so many things that we wouldn't do in normal circumstances. So here you go. That's an example of that. I jumped into uh, in, into that abyss, in my opinion, and just hoped for the best. And guess what? I actually gained quite a lot of flexibility around my work uh, day. And most importantly, uh, my longest trip was literally uh, up to Oxford or Cambridge or to the campus of Imperial College, which is about 15-minute walk from where I live. So I gained on that, but obviously that constant need for thinking ahead and for planning and for fending for oneself, which entrepreneurs have uh, entered my world as well, because I didn't have the large organization um, to fend for me anymore. Mm, there you go. A female story there and a banker. Well, I was doing the commute Moscow, London, not weekly, but monthly at the time, 2012. 
And uh, it's a very surreal experience. You and I talked about it when Credit Suisse just basically stopped being Credit Suisse a month or so ago. And you were saying it's so weird to, to, to have worked somewhere and this place is no longer it there. It disappears. And I was telling you, yep, join the club because I worked in Russia and I was head of strategy for equity markets, Russian equities. And this is, it's gone. It's missing. It's never coming. Well, never say never, but like it's, it's a black hole and it's a really weird feeling when, when you're in this. So yes, but good call on you not going to Moscow. <laughs> um, absolutely family priorities, all that. And we, we have to make these choices. But so this is a woman in finance and a woman uh, in business. Uh, any other things you want to add on that topic before we close it? Well, um, the topic uh, on uh, Credit Suisse disappearing or Renaissance Capital, your former um, employer disappearing, is such that indeed institutions might come and go, but people stay. And the network of colleagues that I have from Credit Suisse is there. A Credit Suisse uh, had the amazing ability to attract some absolutely brilliant people and then the amazing ability of losing them. So this is the reason why they, they don't exist anymore. There's nothing so surprising there. But I am very, really very, very honored and lucky to have this um, alumni uh, from Credit Suisse. Some of them are dear friends, others are still colleagues and others are, um, believe it or not, uh, some of my of the GPs, the general partners that I'm investing into. The most amazing part is that a lot of the juniors that worked for me are now very successful partners in some of the companies that I'm investing into. So, and then uh, business aside, you are a trustee on the board of the American University in Bulgaria, and you also are involved with Imperial College in London. So you've gone into the, and I know you've been spending a lot of time uh, with with uh, the American University here, and that's a absolutely volunteer work. So any running commentary on why you've chosen to give some of your time away to the educational sector? Um, yes, this was um, initially um, something on the side, and uh, over time it actually grew into a calling, and uh, indeed, a lot of it is um, um, done on volunteer basis. Although um, in the case of Imperial College, I actually work with them now as a as as a um, coach in their accelerators. But why am I so involved in education? I consider education one of the biggest levers we uh, have at our disposal, a universal lever for uh, the advancement of society. And education is very important in fighting ignorance. And as we know, as we can see around the world, ignorance could be used uh, by people to manipulate the masses. And um, I feel that on top of that, in many parts of the world, education, uh, unfortunately, has started to deteriorate. So the top uh, echelons of society will always have access uh, to good education, um, but um, the majority, uh, the people that uh, do not have uh, as much means to pay for private uh, education uh, might not have the same. 
And so um, more than ever uh, at the moment, I feel we need some kind of a system, uh, a sturdy reference point uh, to um, propel um, education at all levels um, ahead. And uh, volunteers are needed for that because education is famously underfunded and um, as a result, um, neglected. And so people like you and I and many others um, have to contribute uh, to education, whether to raise money for it or to uh, contribute uh, their expertise from other areas or to just be there and keep an eye that things are not going completely out of hand. But uh, it, it's, a long-term, it's a long-term goal. It's a, it's a very long-term game. And it's not something that one can invest in for a couple of years and then leave, as I found out, by the way, because this is exactly how I was extending it to be. Initially, I got involved uh, with the American University in Bulgaria back in 2015, and I literally thought it would be a couple of years. And here we are, eight years later, I am going strong and uh, I am continuing to contribute as much, if not more, as I was back uh, at the time, because I realized that it's really important to be consistent and relentless uh, in in that um, mission. Mm, yep, and I've been going for 20 years. I never planned on it. So yes, here you go, uh, he's, same thing. He's exactly. knocking on doors, give me your money. <laughs> 20 years and going strong, right? So good, good. All right, so uh, from education uh, at the American University, you first, or maybe not first, but you got involved with the endowment. And we were talking with you that now you are in the world of private capital and family offices. And what you were telling me is that uh, there is quite a crossover between how endowments are run and then family offices. So I thought for our learning bit of the conversation, we, we talk a little bit or more on family offices, endowments and, and all things that a lot of people may not know about and may enjoy learning a bit about. So how about you tell us? So first of all, I have to apologize to all my listeners because I'm not going to be giving them some really hardcore knowledge like in like we heard earlier, biotech, um, generally tech, uh, and all these amazing wizards um, that some of our classmates are these days in these very specialized areas. Uh, Finance, um, I have to apologize, is much simpler uh, than that, uh, unless we're going into some very structured products, which I'm not going to go into. But sometimes we end up getting the simple things wrong because we think they're simple, so they'll figure themselves out, and unfortunately they don't. So on the topic of endowments, endowments generally are a very a staple of uh, life in America when it comes to universities, or at least they are very visible. In fact, in America, 65% of universities do not have endowments, but those that do have huge amount of money that are very impactful in a lot of different areas uh, and primarily as investors. So... Um, The university on whose board uh, I am also has an endowment. It's not a very large endowment, but large enough for us to, of course, constantly worry about it because endowments are meant to be a safety belt for an institution that is supposed to be around forever and is supposed to be growing very nicely over time and is supposed to be um, 
most importantly, as beneficial for the um, generations of today as it would be for the generations of tomorrow. So this is called intergenerational equity and is the main driving force behind um, how endowments are being overseen and managed. So endowments could be managed by internal teams of uh, investment professionals. And uh, when the endowments are big, universities always have uh, those types of professionals uh, internally, or they could be outsourced, which is the case of the smaller endowments. And indeed, it is the case of the endowment of uh, the American University in Bulgaria. Most uh, of the outsourced work generally is paid for, except um, if uh, you are not a particularly rich university, which is the American University in Bulgaria, where you try to recruit uh, different uh, skilled professionals in different areas, put them on your investment committee and ask them to work more or less for free. Now, um, we, for our endowment, we have one of the... um, most uh, um, well-recognized public uh, securities uh, fund managers in the U.S., uh, Steve Ott from Federated um, Hermes in the U.S., who actually oversees billions of dollars uh, of investment. He's the chief uh, chief investment officer of Federated um, Investment. Then we have a number of other people, including myself, who have more experience uh, in the private markets, who have been um, contributing uh, with that knowledge uh, for the endowment. But most importantly, we have tried to create a structure around this endowment that is sturdy, predictable, and consistent, uh, so that uh, we can get every year um, some returns from, from that endowment for our budget and for scholarships and all of that, which is a standard practice. Uh, grow the endowment at the same time and make sure that the future generations uh, have will be a guaranteed a similar type of return as uh, the current generation. Um, it's not always very easy to make sure that these returns are consistent. And so there is a balance that needs to be achieved between what you're taking out of the endowment, where you're putting the endowment uh, to get invested, Um, and what you plan for the endowment to generate uh, going forward. And um, I I would say this is more an art than a science. Uh, Over time in America, endowments uh, have become more and more skewed towards uh, private capital because of its um, elevated returns, but also because private capital matches the timelines of endowments and other patient capital. In other words, if you look at private capital, uh, when you invest money in private equity or, say, uh, venture, uh, you usually invest uh, for 10 to 12 years. And uh, if you um, are answering to some other investors, um, you usually are expected to show returns um, annually. Well, um, with private capital, that is quite more difficult. So endowments are not uh, expected to show any returns and any great successes on annual basis. They have a much longer um, timeline to them. And in a way, uh, they fit much better with with the private capital market. So it is no surprise that endowments have started going more and more into private capital. Now, for the family offices, Well, family offices, in a way, have a very similar 
timeline as endowments. They are there forever. They're there to be um, not the family office itself, but the wealth of the family office uh, is being accumulated to be a safety belt uh, for the family going forward, for a family going forward. And um, in a similar fashion, when you invest the wealth of a family office, you want to invest it with the long-term horizon. So um, it is not surprising that family offices, uh, especially in Europe, by the way, um, have been a um, very um, serious pillar in the um, investment in private capital and have been a particularly important uh, participant uh, for venture capital. So my background from the spin-outs and uh, from um, all the, the, the dealings with Magnolia Advisory in the first five years after leaving the bank um, actually um, was very much geared towards the venture capital space. Um, of course, it was ra rather specialized and focused on chemicals and uh, life sciences and biotech, uh, but still, it was seriously um, risky capital that uh, I was dealing with. A lot of times, companies that might have had some uh, semblance of a revenue, but certainly uh, no semblance of an, what we call EBDA, or in other words, profitability. Uh, so that part of the market, uh, the venture capital market, um, has become increasingly very interesting, both for endowments and uh, for family offices. I think that there are many reasons why that's the case, not the least um, the publicity that, of course, is being attributed uh, to that space because it, it is very exciting and it's fairly new, uh, but also because of the outsized returns one could make if they really um, find um, a, a very successful company. And as we know, if we had invested in Andrew Boot's company, uh, we would have had those outsized <laughs> returns. Someone said in an interview recently, if we had invested in uh, uh, our tuition fee in Apple stock back in 2003, he had made the calculation, it sounded something like 22 million. So <laughs> there you go, I shut up. Back to you. Indeed, you know, uh, the uh, um, if, if we look back, then we, we'll see lots of things that could have been very profitable. But never mind. Uh, venture capital is one of those places that is very exciting, where only 3% of your investment probably will give you any returns and where um, even a smaller percentage uh, would turn out to be uh, the mythical unicorn. Uh, so... That being said, a lot of family offices and quite a few endowments, including um, INSEAD's endowment, are very excited about the space and they are dedicating more capital to the space. On the flip side, that space is significantly um, less understood compared to the other areas of private capital, such as private equity, private debt, infrastructure, real estate. Uh, these... Um, Areas have been around for a long period of time. They're a lot more um, established. They actually, most of the time, are quite profitable. Um, so they're easier to understand. Venture capital remains uh, quite a small um, area uh, in comparison and uh, a, a small village as well. Um, venture capital is famously difficult to uh, 
really um, understand if you're not part uh, of that little club. And that's particularly the case with Europe uh, for two reasons, I'd say, just because of the way venture capital is, it, it's still a small area, but also because Europe is uh, so fragmented uh, based on geography and uh, different nationalities. So there could be quite a lot of um, value added to family offices or endowments by anyone that understands that space and understands how to um, navigate it and uh, how to also look for the right uh, fitting investments uh, for these uh, structures. Going back to my original um, discussion about endowments, and now I'd like to add family offices to that, both structures are um, structures that are not regulated, uh, structures that um, can potentially oversee quite uh, a lot of money, and also that span generations. So one of the things that we have found, uh, both as advisors to family offices, but also as um, managers of endowments, is that these structures require absolutely draconian um, infrastructure and rules um, to guide them. If those don't exist, then quite uh, a few messy situations could ensue especially in the case of family offices when the next generations come. So um, in both cases, with my family offices and with the endowment, one of the most important uh, things that we insist on is the um, investment committees. It's the structures, how one could invest. It's... Um, decisions uh, by consensus. It's the things that you would see um, very much in practice in professional organizations, but you might not necessarily feel uh, you need uh, in such um, areas like family offices. After all, this is the family. We can agree between us how to do things. Well, no. Family is the worst. No, right? that is actually one of the most difficult situations to explain to families that you must agree to the rules and you must uh, relentlessly follow them. Otherwise, you're risking real serious disappointment and ultimately, potentially, um, quite some conflictual situations um, in the family. And so what's the smallest size when people start thinking about family office establishing small, smaller size of assets, dollars, euro? <laughs> That's a good question. And... There's absolutely no rule of thumb. Some people have, um, I mean, it's definitely in the millions, right? Because otherwise it's not, uh, it, it, it doesn't make sense. But I know, quote unquote, family offices that are uh, co-investors, LPs with us in some funds that have, say, um, 50 million or even less uh, under management and one of the uh, second generation um, kids is overseeing the family office in addition to, to their regular job. So it starts with as, uh, as, as little as that to be called family office because of course when you call yourself a family office and then you go and, and become an investor, people ask you how much money you have yeah. um, under management. So you will have to um, have something that is um, somewhat uh, meaningful for um, for for uh, for for the world around you, 
And then you could go all the way to into the billions, of course. And the larger the family office, the bigger the structure around them, naturally. Um, but uh, sometimes you would be surprised um, how much money is being kind of left in bank accounts or, you know, other places that is not being touched uh, because nobody knows um, how exactly to do it or they're afraid that the rest of the family would be very upset with them if they um, went and invested it into something that then um, turns out to be um, unprofitable. The rainy day is fun. Mm-hmm. All right. All right. So last comments here and then we're going to not entirely different, but different parts of the conversation. Well, a lot of the family offices that I see and certainly the one that I work with at the moment are very much focused on the legacy of the family beyond uh, the financial returns. And more often than not, to my greatest pleasure and um, and satisfaction, they are willing to support uh, education. There you go. Well, that's a very nice, very smooth entry into my favorite topic, which is INSEAD and why give back to INSEAD. And because we've been talking endowments, thank you for giving me uh, that easy entry. Uh, I just looked up as we were as as you were talking. Inside, when we were on campus, the endowment was less than 50 million, five zero. At the end of August 2022, which is the end of the financial year, INSEAD had close to 400 million. So not quite 10x, but in the 20 years since we've left the school, um, it's gone uh, dramatically up. Um, in no small part during the last 10 years. And there's another Bulgarian we can brag about, but we won't. And uh, INSEAD now is the biggest endowment of a business school outside of the US, but that's where the good news ends because still it's a one-tenth of the size of the biggest business school endowment, which no surprise to anyone is Harvard Business School. And it was around 3.4 billion uh, two years ago. That's what I can find while while you were talking. So there you go. Um, but uh, but the school has uh, gone a, a long way, and our own endowment is now at 430,000. And as you know, well, we've been talking. Um, um, the goal this year is to get it to 1 million. So we are doing our small bit uh, there as well. And I'm getting a little help from a lot of friends. So <laughs> keep it coming. And your own story with, the, with, with, with giving back to INSEAD is one where I used to email you in the early years after graduation. And you, and you used to respond, I will not give to INSEAD, do not bother me. And then years later, this changed, and I'm very happy about this. But you have your story, so give me the story of why you wouldn't give and then what made you change. Well, mind. the story is not entirely um, dissociated it's from, not it's not well, from it's the endowment, by the way. Exactly. But at the time when we graduated from INSEAD, um, our um, MBA program was... Um, unprofitable. So even though they were teaching us how to run businesses um, in in INSEAD, indirectly wasn't able to run a a profitable operation. I don't blame them. It is very difficult. But for me, it it looked rather um, 
ironic. And I felt that they at least should try to to break even before I started um, funding um, funding in any way the growth. But I'm very glad that um, INSEAD is where it is today, which is uh, profitable and has an amazing um, endowment. Uh, uh, so I just want to say that I have been supporting INSEAD for the last few years. Um, well, also, thanks for your insistence, but not only that, because I basically am delivering on what I said I would do, which is when they turn a profit, I'm going to start to support them. Our endowments grow because, of course, we invest them well, but also because of large donations. And the um, INSEAD endowment um, is managed by a very skilled um, outsourced CIO, Partners Capital. Um, they're one of the largest um, uh, asset managers in the world at the moment. Uh, but, uh, of course, they are very skilled, but it's not just that. Um, INSEAD has been extremely successful in attracting a lot of money for this endowment. And when the money goes into the endowment, what happens is that a small portion of that money um, every year comes out and uh, funds something, but um, the, the capital remains inside and creates that, um, what I was calling um, uh, financial cushion, um, that uh, carries the institution into perpetuity. So endowments are exceptionally important for, uh, for educational institutions. And the fact that uh, INSEAD has done such a good job over the past 10 years um, is not uh, accidental. Uh, it's, it's very much, it was very much part of the strategy. So I'm really, really glad to see it. Yeah, there you go. Well, INSEAD on the latest... Um charts that I've seen has been the number two school for the average for the last five years uh, on the FT rankings, whereas we are number 21 by endowment. So we are, we are definitely, A, we have a lot more to go on the endowment size fundraising, but B, we are, what was the word in English? Um, we are much, we are performing much better than the endowment would suggest. So. You need to. You you really need to give um, INSEAD and everyone that is trying to raise an endowment outside of the U.S. more credit. The U.S. Uh, as a as a as a country has always relied on a lot of philanthropy um, of uh, its richest to give to um, the areas of art, education, and so on and so forth. So Europe is. In, in particular, because we're comparing here Europe and the US, Europe is completely different. It is really the the states that support um, institutions of education, wh whether it's uh, primary, secondary or higher education. And so the population is being taxed quite a nice chunk of money. And then um, that's basically what is expected of them to be responsible taxpayers and not necessarily to be um, afterwards uh, responsible donors because the state is supposed, supposed to be uh, performing that role. And so INSEAD is unusual in that it's a, it's a U.S. system. And by the way, it's the same as the university where I'm on the board, AUBG, it's the same thing. Um, the, the U.S. system comes to Europe and finds out that Europe, in a way, is not fit for it when it comes to, um, to philanthropy. And even though INSEAD is not supported by any government, um, it is very much 
um, recruiting uh, students from around the world that do not maybe have the same type of mentality yeah. as uh, the U.S. students or just generally um, the U.S., so when you go to the U.S., I mean, one of the first things when you start in a U.S. institution, and I and I actually studied undergrad, uh, I ended up studying in, in the U.S. and graduating from a U.S. institution, they start talking about your contribution to the alma mater uh, way before you graduate. They, they kind of raise you with that um, thinking that you will... Uh, only uh, be uh, as as, uh, as as good as part of this institution as long as you continue supporting it. You are a shareholder for life. You are one, two, three, four years part of this institution as an active participant, and then for the rest of your life you are an alum. And you know it doesn't make sense for you not to support the institution as much um, as you can because you are a shareholder and you want, um, in a way, your stake in this institution to be growing rather than yeah. shrinking. But it's it's ingrained in you. And for INSEAD to achieve so much with their endowment when they're out of that system is really quite impressive. Yeah. Don't put it on the same list as um, all these um, institutions in the US. It's literally to compare professional tennis players with uh, someone that is knocking a ball every week uh, in the local... Well, except they do compete for the same professors and for the same students. And that's where it becomes tricky because when we don't have enough of scholarships to give, some of the students choose the other schools instead of INSEAD because they don't have the money or simply because they get an offer from the other school that they cannot resist. So that's where it becomes tricky, right? So... But anyhow, there you go. So thank you very much. And I'm very, very happy that um, you have changed your mind over the years. We still have, so the statistics at the moment is that 227 of our class are donors. And hopefully we managed to convert some of the other 205 over time. And there you go. That's part of why we are talking about it on the podcast. Um, and now to the last bit, and hopefully we can be quick. Uh, quick round of questions for you. Proudest achievement? My family. Success for you is? Um, being in the position to help others. Happiness is? Difficult to define. All right. Biggest regret? Not leaving banking earlier. Hmm. What keeps you awake at night? The 11 plus exam of my son. <laughs> there you go. It's Talk not funny. Education. I know. Here it might sound funny. Yes. <laughs> Wish you had known or someone had told you. That human relationships are probably the most important thing in life. And that's what needs to be nurtured and cherished. If you had to do it all over again, what would you change? other than leaving banking? Probably nothing. Great. Retirement ever or never? Uh, Hopefully I'll always be in a position to actually um, work in some some form or shape, actually. I don't want to retire. If you had to pick one book everyone should read? Right. Um, First of all, I thought about that um, on and off uh, for a while and all the books that I'm reading are actually very specialized on what I do so that would have made me very very boring (laughs) then I thought about the fact that I was um, very uh, fortunate um, to host um, uh, 
an author from Bulgaria not long ago um, who recently, uh, together with his translator, won the International Booker Prize. So his name is Georgi Gospodinov, and uh, his translator um, is Angela Rodell, who happens to be on the board of the American University in Bulgaria, and she's also the head of Fulbright uh, in Bulgaria, and uh, I am proud to say also a dear friend. Um, the Booker Prize is given to um, obviously a, a, a very deserving and outstanding um, piece of international literature, and it's given in the UK. And this year, it was Time Shelter that um, got the Booker Prize. And uh, Time Shelter is what I would recommend for people to read. I, uh, with a warning, this is um, postmodernist type of literature. So it wouldn't be um, the usual um, stuff that people are used to reading uh, on the beach, uh, but it raises a lot of questions and a lot of um, a, a lot of issues around the world that we live in today. And I'm going to stop there because I, I really hope that that people make the effort uh, to read it. It's um, it, it, it it's. Very what uh, I'll add here is basically, please, whoever reads it, let me know what you got out of it. I'm very curious because I listened to it and on purpose I listened to it in English. I think it's very difficult to get through. I think it's difficult to understand bits of it if you are not Bulgarian or if you are not Eastern European. So I would love for a few of the Westerners to give me feedback. I'm, I'm curious, genuinely. Now, most of my public person. Oh, Nelson Mandela. And wow. the reason I'm saying this is because I have been on and off trying to work to help my children because we are asked to uh, with some of their research papers. And um, my son actually picked Nelson Mandela as one of the, uh, the people that he wanted to research. And I was absolutely amazed by the resilience of this person, really. And when we speak about resilience, I think it was Andrew Booth that was saying something about resilience um, earlier in your series. That's probably one of the most important uh, features that a successful person exhibits. And the faith that he had in that one day his cause will finally uh, be successful is really um, astounding. So, um, yeah, Nelson Mandel, my hero. Mm. Most despised public person? I don't have, no. I mean, some people really annoy me from time to time. Uh, the English politicians uh, over the past maybe year have been quite a disappointment, but not to the extent of despising it. All right. And the last question for you. Are you coming to reunion? Yes, of course. There you go. October 6th in Fontainebleau. Gallery dinner at the Chateau on October 7th. And now, finally, I can officially say that this was a conversation with Victoria and Twistle, used to be Pavlova, I've forgotten that now, private capital investor, accelerator coach at Imperial, Imperial College London, vice chair of the board of trustees of the American University in Blagojevgrad, 
and a mother and a very dear personal friend of mine, as you have figured out, I'm very, very happy with this conversation. Thank you very much for your help, for your time. And people, this is a re-recording. Only Queen Victoria can make me do this conversation twice. So <laughs> now you know how special she is. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Milena, for doing this. It's really wonderful that you have undertaken this um, quite uh, laborious uh, project, but um, we will know a lot more about each other than any other cohort that is had so far or in the future, unless they copy your idea. So thank you for that. Copiers, welcome. I will not sue for rights. Okay. All right. Thank you. You have a good day. Thanks so much. You were listening to the Republic of INSEAD 20 Years Later O3D podcast edition. It is my hope to remind everyone what an interesting and dare I say colorful bunch of people we are and how much we can contribute to each other, be it through ideas, knowledge or mere inspiration. The podcast is inspired by the original Republic of INSEAD yearbook produced on paper 20 years ago by Oliver Bradley and team. Thank you, Oli and team, for this contribution to our class's memory and for letting me continue in the tradition, title and inspiration included. Creator and author of the Republic of INSEAD 20 Years Later O3D podcast edition am I, Milena Ivanova. Original music by Peter Dundakov with help from Dare Films Productions. Stay tuned for more and remember to book your tickets for the 20-year reunion in Fontainebleau, October 6th, 8th, 2023. Thank you for listening.